You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Introduce the custodian of that sweet shop. <laughs> or, as her job description says, librarian and college archivist, Helen Chenton, who will say a few words about the lecture series and its place in the library's activities. She's Trinity's first ever female librarian, formerly executive director of the library at Harvard, having earlier worked at the British Library and the Victorian Albert Museum. Helen Chenton. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for that, Mark. I've been called something, but I've never been called custodian of the sweet shop before. <laughs> um, so a very, very warm welcome. Um, as, uh, as Mark says, um, I'm the, I have this fabulous uh, job title of librarian and college archivist, which means that I'm the custodian of the six million uh, volumes we have here. Uh, but most importantly for this audience, we have 600 medieval manuscripts, which is probably the greatest collection of medieval manuscripts on the island of Ireland. Um, and that's the context, if you like, of this lecture series. Uh, we've got eight lectures um, over the next two terms, and each one centres on one of the of Trinity's medieval manuscripts, which will all have been digitised by the end of the series. Um, and just to give you some context, um, we have a very, very, very ambitious library strategy, and part of that is that we're committed to making our collections more accessible, more accessible to scholars, more accessible for students, more accessible for our visitors, more accessible for citizens, um, but in a safe way that's consistent with our duty of stewardship, because we are really stewarding these on behalf of the, of the country. So, for example, we recently uh, completed a major project funded by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, which centred on four of our manuscripts, and we conserved them, we researched them, um, we digitised um, four early Irish manuscripts, The Garland of Hope, uh, The Book of Mullin, Eusebianus Primus, and The Book of Dimmer. They've been conserved beautifully. They're all available online for anyone around the world to look at. Um, we've made films of them. The films we've introduced into the Book of Kells exhibition. Um, and we're also, in the spirit of, of, um, of making the collections more accessible to our visitors, um, who are numbering nearly projected 940,000 are coming to see the Book of Kells this year, um, we're starting to rotate other manuscripts in there. So I just checked. And at the moment, you can also see the Garland of Hope and, in fact, the Book of Armagh are on display with the Book of Kells at the moment. And then this is all part of an emphasis, obviously, on our fantastic collections. Um, so we're also, next year, we'll have an exhibition in the long room of, um, of our medieval Latin manuscripts. And then there's work underway um, and there'll be a conference in May on our Irish language medieval manuscripts and so on. So it all builds up. Um, the second point of context is that last year, um, a cohort of some about 35 new assistant professors joined Trinity, and they're named after Usher. He's the eminent scholar, and he's so influ influential in the formation of the library's collections here at Trinity. And for the first time in these new, new professorships, the library could be a partner 
Um, and we're delighted that we're the, the library is the partner in four ushers, what we call ushers, usher. One in medieval literature, one's in early Irish history, one's in children's literature, and one's in intelligent systems and computer science. And so it's particularly wonderful to see this lecture series as a direct result of those new assistant professorships. And Mark is Usher Assistant Professor of Medieval Literature. Um, he was the final doctoral student of Malcolm Parks, the greatest English paleographer of his generation, who passed away in 2013. Mark's dissertation focused on the use and reuse of manuscripts in the High Middle Ages, and he's since published widely on all aspects of the medieval book. Before he joined us a year and a month ago, he, he um, had spent four years as lecturer in medieval English at the University of Sheffield. And here in Trinity, um, he teaches medieval English literature. With Laura Cleaver, tonight's speaker, he's been leading the development of a new manuscript-focused interdisciplinary MPhil in medieval studies here at Trinity, which we'll, we'll take the first students in, in September 2019. So this series is a collaboration between the new ushers, the library, the research theme of manuscript book and print culture, and the Trinity Long Room Hub in whose beautiful space we are at the moment. Uh, there will be a podcast output of each of these talks, so they'll live on. Um, and then just a couple of thank yous from me, as well as uh, our academic colleagues. I particularly want to call out my uh, library colleagues in manuscripts, Jane Maxwell and Estelle Gittings, who worked on this. Um, a big thank you to the digital content creator, Jill Whelan, um, for um, digitising these, these uh, manuscripts in such a beautiful way. And also to John Gillis, who's done the conservation that enables the digitisation, which enables the access and so on. Anyway, um, I think we're in for an absolute treat. I hope all of you can make all late. Um, and on that note, I'll hand over to Mark and introduce Laura. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Tyler. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. Dr. Laura Cleaver, another Usher lecturer from the previous generation in medieval art. Laura works on the production of art and architecture in the High Middle Ages, particularly medieval illuminated manuscripts. She's published one book on the depiction of education in 12th century manuscripts, has another forthcoming on the depiction of history in 12th century manuscripts, and has also published a catalogue of Latin Psalter manuscripts in Dublin, which makes her uniquely well positioned to talk about the manuscript tonight. Trinity College 92, an illuminated Psalter, and ours. Laura will speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll have some time for questions after that. Laura. Okay, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Helen. It's a great honour to be the first in this series, which will introduce some of our well-known and lesser-known treasures to a wider audience. One of the wonderful things about teaching here is the opportunity to use our collections in classes, to take students to get to know them, and to spend some time researching 
and over the last seven years I've started to get to know this collection but so rich is it that um, I've still got many new things to learn. I'm incredibly grateful to the library for facilitating those classes and the research and now for having enabled us to start sharing some of these objects which, with a global audience by digitising them and putting them online. As some of you know, I travel a lot and one of the things I often get asked is which manuscripts in the collection are your favourites? And I think this must be how parents feel a little bit if you know they're asked to choose one of the children. It's always something that I find quite difficult to answer. Um, obviously I love them all equally, but <laughs> if I have to choose some favourites, um, Manuscript 92, which I've chosen to talk about tonight, would be one of them. And there are various reasons for that. First of all, um, it is a richly and elaborately illuminated manuscript, so it appeals to my art historian's attraction for shiny, beautiful things. At the same time, it also appeals to my own particular fondness for underdogs, for books that have had difficult lives. Um, as we will see, it is not in great condition. At some point in its history, it lost its cover, which made it very vulnerable to damage. It has lost quite a lot of its leaves and what survives is sometimes bound in the wrong order. Um, so it is something that has been overlooked largely by scholarship, I think because it's been written off as something that's not in the finest of conditions. Thankfully, our conservation team has done a wonderful job of patching it up and it's now in a modern replacement parchment binding. The final reason that I have returned to this book over several years is that it is a bit of a puzzle. It contains lots of imagery that seems to be giving us clues about who it was made for and who its original owners were. But although we can, I think, narrow down the possible candidates, an exact identification of the original patron remains elusive. So what I'm going to do today is divide this talk into three parts. First of all, I'm going to talk you through it and introduce the manuscript and its decoration. I'm then going to look at the figurative imagery in some detail. And then finally, I want to turn to this tricky question of who it might have been made for. So like the Book of Cows, Manuscript 92 was made as a devotional tool. It's written in Latin, and on the basis of its style, we can be confident that it was made in England at the end of the 14th century. So it's a lot later than the Book of Cows. It's not a gospel book, so it is a Psalter, so the, a copy of the Old Testament book of Psalms. And here we're looking at the beginning of that section of the text with this wonderful, large, illuminated letter B for Beatus, where the beginning of the Psalms Blessed is the man who doesn't follow the advice of the wicked. The Psalms were absolutely central to the Christian liturgy of the Middle Ages. They formed the backbone of church services, were sung regularly and memorised by many people. Very well known core text for the Middle Ages. 
Here, however, we've got them written out in full in the order that they appear in the Bible. So it's a cue for meditation and devotion. As you can see from the elaborate border that runs all the way around this page that the decoration is here telling us that we're arriving at a break in the text. And the Psalter is actually the second section of this work. Before that, we have what is known as the text of the Book of Hours. And this combination of the Hours and the Psalter were very popular in books made for lay people in the 14th and 15th centuries. The Book of Hours first appears in the middle of the 13th century in England, and one of the earliest examples is the De Grail's Hours in the British Library, which is what you're looking at here. The text of the Hours allowed laymen and women to follow a version of the monastic liturgy, with versions of the prayers, psalms, antiphons and hymns used in monastic devotion. And it placed particular emphasis on devotion to the Virgin Mary. As you can see, these aren't my hands, but they are, you know, in reality, real-sized human hands. So the point of this slide is to give you a sense of the size of this manuscript. It's tiny. And that means that it's portable. So in theory, you could carry it around with you, whip it out at the correct time of day to follow the prayers um, and live a devout and pious life. As you can see, how it's also beautifully, lavishly illuminated with these large initials with golden colours introducing different sections of the text and providing a cue for meditation and devotion. What the imagery is also doing, however, is demonstrating that the person who owned this book had a lot of money, marking it out as a status symbol. So we start to get into a grey area here about whether you are purely using this for devotion or whether you're actually showing off a little bit so that all your friends know just how devout you really are. Also, how rich. Lots of books of ours are less elaborately decorated than this and some of them were so well used that they have completely fallen to pieces. Others were handled very, very carefully with cloths so that they lasted really well. And some, I suspect, were never really opened but um, were used, should it be necessary, to demonstrate um, devotion or were kept as, as precious objects in their own right. So in contrast to this tiny book of ours, our manuscript is rather bigger. It's about the size of an A4 page, 31 by 20 centimetres. So this is not something that you were readily carrying around with you. Instead, it's probably a family possession, perhaps used in collective uh, devotional activity. Because the hours text was at the front of the book, it sustained much more damage than the Psalter, and a significant chunk of it no longer survives. There were probably originally 156 leaves in this manuscript, and we've now only got 98. So we've lost a substantial part of it, most of it from that front section. From what survives, though, 
And this is an example. You can see that this too was beautifully, lavishly and expensively decorated. We're looking at a letter K on the left here for the start of the Curie Eleison um, section. And that is then followed by a list, um, as part of the litany, of the saints to whom prayers were offered. So we begin at the top with um, the Holy Mother of God, and then we carry on down here with the angelic saints, St. Michael, St. Gabriel, St. Raphael, um, and all the angels and archangels. And then at the end here you have O and R, an abbreviation for pray for us, pray for me. These kinds of lists of saints are really useful to scholars because they were adapted for the individual owner for whom a book was made. And further on in this list, which covers several pages, we find some saints that again help us to, to be firm about the conclusion that this book was made for an English family. They include people like Swithin and Botov, who were um, popular saints in medieval England. So overall, then, we can say that this was a lavishly decorated, expensive, visually impressive object made for a lay audience. It was probably produced in a London workshop. Again, we can do this by comparing it with other books. And it was worked on by at least three artists who collaborated closely together. And this is not uncommon in books of this period, but you find teams of people working together in order to speed up the production. But in particular, with this book, we can see that they were collaborating, sharing ideas, all trying to work in more or less the same style. So the first artist working through the manuscript at the beginning of the book is responsible for the hours. Um, so his work looks like this. And he also did the first part of the Psalter. He seems to have preferred this sort of dusty pink colour and blue. He goes in for a lot of foliage, and if I move into a detail here, um, if you look at the way he does the leaves in the margin, they have this very distinctive shape with these round lobes and then these pointed extension here on this rather fine stem. It gets a little bit more chunky in the bottom there, but on the whole he likes this rather fine shape. So that's how you can tell um, his work. The next artist was responsible for a relatively small part of the marginal decoration. His work is found primarily on folios 22 to 7, and you've got an example of his work on the right there. As you can see, he uses a rather warmer palette. And there's red coming in there as well as the blue and pink. His leaves are attached to thicker stems and have a different shape to them. So although he also uses this marginal motif of foliage, it has its own personal, his own personal stamp on it. In this section of the manuscript, most of the initials and some of the margins contain figures. Um, so what we've got here is known as a historiated initial because it's got figures in it. There's a story going on and we'll come back to that in a minute. And 
I think what's going on is that the artist who did this border decoration also did the figures, and he probably did the figures throughout the manuscript, even when they appear in sections where a different artist had completed the borders. And he conceivably was in charge of the whole um, project of decoration. However, he doesn't do very much of the border work. Um, he appears to leave that to other people. And a third artist then takes over from folio 28. Um, and here's an example of what his work looks like. Again, this artist was fond of swirling foliage um, and also geometric designs. He too uses these marginal leaves, but again, they're quite different in appearance and he prefers these very curved leaves interspersed with these fine lines there. And he again goes for a different palette. So we get a much darker pink, really a purple now um, coming through his work. Overall, however, there is a consistency to the whole thing. So at a cursory glance, you wouldn't necessarily notice um, the change of artist. I think you, it is quite clear as soon as you look for it, but the whole impression is still one of uniformity. This third artist has a fondness for dragons. Um, this is one of my favourite details. So these don't appear to have anything to do with the text. They're just part of his decorative vocabulary. But we've got not one but three dragons here, two biting the ends of the initial, and then a third little red one where there's foliage spurting out of his mouth. So these just seem to be fun, a bit of the design. Of all of these then, as you probably guessed, it's the work of the second artist that particularly interests me. And I think it's particularly valuable because it demonstrates an active engagement with the text. So I want to now spend a bit of time exploring some of his work and thinking about how the text relates to um, the imagery. What we find in the second artist's work is both marginal figures and figures in the initials and they have a different status within the layout and program of the manuscript as a whole so we're looking at an opening here and we've got a figure in the initial down here which is anchored into and integral to the text our decoration is added into a letter, which in turn is part of a word as part of that text, and the whole thing is set into this central text block here. So this has a profound and intimate connection with the text of the Psalms. The other marginal decoration, the marginal decoration then, even though it stems out of these initials to fill the margins, it has a different status to the text. Traditionally, in book design, you put the important content in the middle, and then the margins are a less important space. It's the area that gets damaged as you turn the pages. And it can also be an area where you add notes, comments, things that work with the text without being integral to it. And I think that helps to explain some of the weird and wonderful things that you've probably spotted going on in the border over here. 
So margins were traditionally a place where artists could have a bit more freedom, could sometimes poke a bit of fun at the text, play around with ideas. So these are, in fact, the first figures in the section of the Psalter. And if we zoom in and look at them in a bit more detail, we can see that the figure of the little king in the initial there clearly relates to the contents of the text. The word is domine, um, domine in virtute tua, and I've translated it for you at the bottom there. In my strength, O Lord, the king shall joy, and in my salvation he shall rejoice exceedingly. So this doesn't show us great imagination on the part of the artist. He spotted a reference to king and he's illustrated king. Worth noting that although the Psalms were identified as a text written by the biblical King David and therefore royal text with lots of royal associations, here the artist has chosen to represent a king in medieval dress with his rather nice fur-trimmed cloak here, um, and we'll come back to that later on. So there's a conflation for the viewer between the biblical royal King David and the contemporary monarchy, who were um, considered to be anointed by holy oil and therefore ordained and put into position by God. In contrast, then, the, um, the man wearing a pair of bellows in the margin is much less straightforward. Um, he's got his mouth open, and that choice to show a pair of bellows as his hat is presumably suggesting that this is a bit of a windbag. <laughs> and I think what the artist is trying to do here is contrast with the content of the Psalms. The Psalms are full of references to people crying out to God, crying out in praise. Um, you've got exaltarit here, so exalting God. And in contrast to that, you've got this man just making noise. So I think there's an opposition here being drawn between the prayers offered by those reciting the Psalms and the sort of empty noise being made by this man. We can pick out a few other details about him. He is clearly a lay person. He's got a lovely um, cloak here of blue lined with a white trim and um, a nice red pair of sleeves with some lovely buttons. This artist is very, very fond of buttons. You'll see lots of buttons there. So this is suggesting that he is somebody wealthy um, and not a member of the church, but he's just spouting off. And again, the fact that he's got his back turned to the text suggests that this is somebody who has turned away from the sacred message of the Psalms. And it suggests, therefore, that the artist is also having a bit of fun here. He's got some license to play around with the ideas that he's finding in the text. Over the page, we find another figure making noise in the same place at the top left here, this time somebody with a trumpet. Um, and here, this figure is, is right up against the word gaudio, praise, rejoice. Um, so it's again unclear whether this is a reference to somebody making appropriate noise or again somebody turned away making, making inappropriate, loud um, noise. Further down, in the 
initial, we find a really strange creature. And having said to you that there's a difference in status between serious imagery of the initials and this more playful imagery in the margin, this one may come as a bit of a surprise to you. But again, I think if we read the text, we can find an explanation for it. The psalm here begins, Oh God, my God, look upon me, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it goes on to say, I am a worm and no man, the reproach of men and the outcast of the people. And here what we have is an attempt to draw a man's head on something grotesque and a little bit worm-like with this long tail. And in the extensions of the initial we have a male head and a female head looking on but in a separate space to that space of the central initial as if this chap has been cast out and rejected by these people. Later in the psalm we get this reference to a lion ravening and roaring and there's lots of animal imagery in this psalm which may help to explain the fantastic dragon creature down here with its mouth open as if it is roaring and waiting to devour the people further up. Um, obviously not a lion, but something equally um, fantastical. And again, the artist having a good time in exploring these psalms. Now at this point, unfortunately, what would have been the next page is missing. But if we carry on through the rest of the section illuminated by the second artist, we find similar themes emerging. Um, most of the imagery in the initials can be readily explained by the content of the text. So at the bottom of this page, even this funny looking object can be explained by the text. The text here is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And this represents the globe um, in a standard medieval treatment where it is divided in three to represent the three continents and this is um, an object often held by Christ to show his domination over the world. So all of this then provided visual clues for the reader of this manuscript, prompts both to help them understand the psalm and to give them something to think about as well as um, something to enjoy aesthetically as they were um, reading the Psalms. Continuing along through this section, we find some of the most peculiar imagery. Um, and this is the, the last two examples that I'm going to really look at in a bit of depth. Some of my, again, my favorite imagery in the margin on the left there. So we've got at the top a grotesque winged creature um, with a head with a beak and he's wearing a cap with bells on, so a jester's cap. Again, something not right here, something very strange but something that's supposed to be fun. And he's facing at the bottom, I've brought you a detail of this, this wonderful grotesque creature with the back limbs of a beast, the wings of a bird and then the head of a Bishop. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this is clearly a negative commentary either on somebody in particular who didn't like the local bishop 
or perhaps the church and the church hierarchy in general. The figure is aligned with the verse, sing to the Lord, O ye his saints, which I think further undermine, underlines the strangeness of this creature who is supposed to be leading that worship, leading the congregation in worship, um, and again suggests that there is something profoundly not right here. Now, the late 14th century was a period that saw calls for significant church reform, not least from John Wycliffe and his followers who advocated translation of the Bible into English to make it more accessible and in part to try and reduce the power of the church, opening up the Bible beyond those who could read Latin. What we're looking at here, therefore, is either an artist who is being allowed to get away with a lot, you know, the patron's not taking too much notice of what's going on here, or perhaps a patron who is sympathetic to calls for church reform and change. And again, we'll come back to that later on. Over the page, the initial in this um, section of the text is again um, a humorous response to the text. You can hopefully see that's a monkey who is chained to the initial there. And the verse is, in thee, O Lord, have I hoped, let me never be confounded, deliver me in my justice. Literally, liberate me um, as libera may. Um, And so here's the little monkey pulling at his chain and saying, set me free, set me free. Not probably what the psalmist had in mind exactly when you put this together, but something that certainly resonates with that text um, and might be prompted to make one reflect on the nature of humanity, who knows. So there seems to be a sort of playfulness here as well as a a significant artistic license. Among the initials in this section, this one, which I showed you briefly before, is particularly noteworthy, as it may help us into the third section of what I want to talk about today, who this owner might have been. It's Psalm 24. Um, For those of you who know your Psalms, you may be thinking, hang on, we're a bit out of step with, with some modern translations, um, they did number the psalms slightly differently in the Middle Ages, so sometimes you're one or two out with the medieval numbers. But this psalm begins, to thee, O Lord, have I lifted up my soul. So personal, um, devotional beginning, and we have somebody in this initial represented kneeling at an altar, praying, making a very familiar gesture of prayer, again, wearing lots of lovely buttons. This is really tiny now, so we've gone to a lot of effort to squeeze those buttons in. And there she is um, talking to God, who's appearing as this disembodied head at the top of the initial. Again, behind her, this grotesque blue face is shouting out at the margin, but she's turned her back to it and she's concentrating on her devotional activity. The interesting point here is that they've chosen to put in a woman. This is not a standard scene. This is not uh, something that would have been true all the time. It is a deliberate choice on the part of the artist. It's not unique. We get other images like this. 
often at the start of books where we can see women being explicitly acknowledged as the readers and patrons. But it opens up the possibility that whoever designed this thought that it was going to be used by a woman, either as an individual or perhaps as part of a family. So hold on to that point because, again, we will come back to it. This is a small initial buried in the surviving part of the Psalms. And at this point, um, the fact that we've lost the beginning of the book is particularly unfortunate because that's typically where you find information about the original patrons often shown in devotion at the beginning so that everybody knows whose book it is. But we haven't got that. So instead we have to fall back on the other clues that we do have in this manuscript. And most intriguing of all is this initial, which is in the section for the Book of Hours. And may I think give us another clue to the original patient of this manuscript. This is a really unusual image. I don't know anything quite like this, which again suggests that it was significant, that it was designed specifically for this book. So we're in the hours, we're at the hour of the terse. Um, the text here is, oh God, come to my assistance. So again, a very personal prayer, the sort of thing that might be adapted for somebody using the book, um, the patron. We've got two figures. Okay? On the left, a female figure with a crown and a halo is presumably the Virgin Mary. She is the focus of devotion of the hours. At the top, the hand of God extends out of those clouds towards her, again, further suggesting that she is a saint and a heavenly figure. On the right, then, is a layman who doesn't have a halo, stays wearing a very fetching hat and carrying a scepter here in one hand. Strikingly, he doesn't quite occupy the same space as the Virgin. She disappears behind the initial here, um, suggesting that she is separated from this chap whose lovely pointy shoes come out over the edge of the initial there. So he seems to belong in our space. She's separate, um, as you would expect the saints to be. However, the two of them are in conversation. They hold these scrolls, um, which is a typical way of representing speech in the Middle Ages. And we can see what the Virgin's scroll says relatively easily. It's not in Latin this time, it's in French, which again suggests that they're trying to make it accessible. And her scroll says, que significa fleur, or what does this flower mean? And this then is presumably referring to what this gentleman is holding here, which appears to be a bunch of red flowers. Now, as you can see, as I'm blowing this up more and more, again, we're in the hours section here. This is the section that was damaged, and most unfortunately for us, there is significant damage to the male figure and his scroll. And the way in which the artist did this was that he drew out where the design was going to be, then he put down a layer of white paint, and then he painted the words over the top of that. 
And what has happened to this scroll is that parts of that white paint have flaked away, taking with it any lettering that may have been here. Now, I was recently told that actually modern scientific testing may make it possible for us to identify something that may once have been there. So I need to go back and um, see if I can persuade our colleagues in conservation to shine some lights on it for me. But I'm not optimistic, so we have to work with, with what we can get. What we can tease out of this, however, is, is a very interesting and perhaps unexpected answer. If the question is, what does this flower mean? The answer appears to begin, je suis, or I am. It's not necessarily what you'd expect, but it seems therefore that, that our male figure is identifying himself very closely with these figures. Then we've got the area of damage, um, and then some words that I think we can start to reconstruct as plen, and we've got the letters dam with an abbreviation mark over the top at the end. Now, Scott McKendrick at the British Library pointed out to me that it's very normal for these sorts of verses to rhyme, which resolves any query about the um, abbreviation mark and gives us damour um, to more or less rhyme with fleur. And so we seem to be moving towards an inscription here that might be translated as I am full of love. So you might think, great, problem solved. Here is a male patron figure expressing his devotion to the Virgin. But the imagery itself raises questions and problems about that. This would be an extremely unusual image of devotion to the Virgin. Um, I'll show you some more a more typical one later on. But normally you'd expect the lay figure to be kneeling and perhaps even presenting her the flowers. Instead, he seems to be holding on to them um, quite determinedly. It's also, if you think about it, a really odd um, conversation. Now, red roses were a symbol of the Virgin, one of the many symbols associated with her. But in this case, we seem to have a conversation in which the Virgin has stopped a passing stranger to ask him what her own symbol means, um, which seems um, an extremely odd thing to do. That the flower is important is also suggested by the fact that it turns up again in the initial to Psalm 146, uh, which you will all recall begins, praise the Lord because it is good to do so, or something like that. That, depending on how you want to translate it. Now, I have scoured this psalm for possible references to red flowers, and there is nothing that strikes me as completely obvious here, which is again interesting, and it suggests that the red rose was in some way important to the owner. One idea that I'm going to plant in your heads, because I am leading you down a particular path, is that we have here a letter L, and we will be coming back to people whose names begin with L um, presently. Okay, so that's the second appearance of the red roses. Now, more problematically, red roses appear again in a printed page that was added to the back of this manuscript at some point. And when I say at some point, I mean considerably after the manuscript was originally made. This is a leaf that was printed onto a piece of parchment as part of an early 16th century missile. At some point it was cut out of that missile and sewn into our manuscript and it was also beautifully painted and coloured. 
It's a perfect devotional tool in isolation, even when you've removed it from the rest of this book. We're looking at the monogram of the name of Christ, so we've got I, H, and then S here, and that has been transformed with this crossbar into a support for the crucifixion, with um, angels collecting Christ's blood as it pours down on the various points, and then the Virgin and St John and the resurrection at the bottom. What I'm interested in, however, is the section at the bottom here, where we have King Henry VII of England, together with his wife Elizabeth of York, the arms of England, and a load of roses that have again been painted red. And by the 16th century, the red rose was a symbol of the House of Lancaster, giving us the basis for the Tudor rose, the famous red and white rose, which comes into being when Henry VII of Lancaster marries Elizabeth of York. The red roses of Lancaster coming together with the white roses of York. So somebody using this book at some point later in its existence thought that red roses were connected with the House of Lancaster. All of this, I'm hoping you're thinking, is extremely circumstantial and thin, but what I'm going to try and do is pile various layers of evidence and see if we can move towards some compelling conclusions. So as I said, by the 16th century, red roses were associated with the House of Lancaster, whose ancestor Henry IV had claimed the throne from Richard II in 1399, which is exactly the time of the production of our manuscript. We can't be precise to the year, but we would normally expect it to be somewhere in the 1390s on the basis of its appearance. And when you do a very spurious visual comparison, putting this image of Henry IV from the National Portrait Gallery in London up alongside our little figure, there are some interesting visual connections, not least to do with the sceptre here, um, and indeed the general form of the dress. However, worth re-emphasising, this is a late 16th or early 17th century portrait um, where we have the red rose. We do not have evidence that the Lancastrian faction were using the rose in any kind of consistent fashion in the late 14th century. Um, as many of you will know, this idea of the wars of the roses and the roses as symbols of the fighting factions around the time of Henry IV and Richard II was given an enormous publicity boost by Shakespeare, who gives us this beautiful scene of people plucking roses to choose sides, which has turned up in all sorts of art and literature ever since, um, including this early 20th, 20th century painting, which captures the drama of Shakespeare's scene. So it's not clear exactly when the Lancastrians in fact started to use this symbol, and if they were using red roses in the 1390s, it's not entirely clear who in the family would have been using them. Intriguingly, red roses do turn up as part of Henry IV's regalia at his tomb at Canterbury Cathedral. So I've tried to keep this is difficult to see, but there's a detail. There's a red rose um, which is taken from here on there. However, again, roses were hugely popular motifs in this period and could just be used as decoration without having profound meaning attached to them. 
the roses in themselves are not a solid link to the Lancastrians, um, even though, of course, Lancaster begins with an L, there are further circumstances which I think do start to build a compelling case for putting our manuscript somewhere in the extended royal family of the late 14th century. Again, those of you who know your Shakespeare will know that Edward III had seven sons, so what I'm giving you here is a vastly abbreviated tree with some of the key players. But we've been talking about Henry IV over here, um, son of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, who seized the, cousin, the throne from his cousin Richard II in 1399. I now want to draw your attention to this person over here, Eleanor de Bourne, who married the younger brother of John of Gaunt in 1376. And the de Bourne family were great consumers of manuscripts. And a manuscript made for Eleanor has some of the strongest parallels with our manuscripts of anything that I have yet seen. Um, and I'll show it to you in just a moment. But before we do that, I also want to just draw your attention to the fact that her sister, Mary, over here, married Henry IV in the early 1380s. And that wasn't coincidental. They were both heiresses to a huge fortune. And so what Henry, who wasn't yet king, was trying to do was get some of that money by marrying Eleanor's sister. So here is another page from our manuscript and a detail of the initial. And this is an initial from another Psalter and Hours made for Eleanor. And I think you can see that there are strong parallels in the imagery here. Both books were probably made in the same workshop. Not, I think, necessarily painted by the same artist, but certainly um, strongly linked. The subject matter is also interesting here when we're thinking about books for members of the extended royal family. The psalm is Sing to the Lord a New Song. And we've got a king, presumably supposed to be King David, directing a choir. And in our manuscript, the figure of God appears at the top there, clearly the Lord to whom this song is being addressed. Intriguingly, however, he has exactly the same face as the king, um, suggesting a conflation between, again, God and the king, and our king is in medieval dress. So again, there's a link between King David and the contemporary ruler. And in Ellen's book, God gets left out altogether, raising the potential for confusion about who exactly these songs of praise are being addressed to. I said that our king looks like contemporary images. Here are some contemporary images just to drive that point home. On the left, you have Richard II from a contemporary, very famous image, the Wilson Diptych in the National, Court, in the National Gallery in London. Um, and on the right, there's Henry IV again. And so our figure appears to be a composite of the two. He's got Richard's hair and Henry's beard. And we find other images of Richard with a beard and Henry before he went bald. So again, none. this is not supposed to be a portrait of a particular king, but it clearly resonates with the contemporary monarchs. So a further piece of evidence, oh, okay, before we get to that, just to reiterate that our chat, coming back to this, is not a king. 
even though he has got this interesting sceptre as a mark of office, and he wears um, a fancy little cap. So there are references in contemporary literature to fancy hats that dukes wore, which again may be a reference to that, but this was not, I think, a book actually made for a king, even if it seems to potentially belong into this orbit of the royal family. And another manuscript that, again, helps to consolidate this picture is another book that's had a difficult history, known as the Carmelite Missal, again, in the British Library. And this book was tragically cut up so that only the initials survive. But it's another book, again, by the same workshop. Again, note the fondness for buttons here. Um, and again, the practice of these little scrolls and the conversation. And this is what it looks like if you are practicing devotion to the Virgin. Um, down on your knees, please, giving her the um, respect she deserves. Now, again, the exact provenance of this book is disputed, but it has been repeatedly associated with people associated with John of Gaunt and the Lancastrian family. So we appear to have an artist who worked repeatedly for members of that group. So we've got a manuscript that seems to present us with a complicated set of clues about its origins. We can be fairly confident that it was made in London in the last decade of the 14th century. The image of the kneeling woman suggests a potential female use, and that reference to love in the initial with the Virgin and the standing man might suggest a context in, um, or a link to a marriage. Now, maybe that I'm just a hopeless romantic and getting a bit carried away, but there are various candidates here. We've already seen the marriages between the, the cousins and the sisters, and in the 1390s, John of Gaunt married Catherine Swinford, giving us another potential um, marriage that could be commemorated by the production of an expensive new devotional book. We've seen the willingness to poke fun at the church hierarchy, which tells us that it's made for somebody who is rich and secure in their own position. And again, there are hints that John of Gaunt and his entourage um, were certainly interested in Wycliffeite ideas and willing to support the cause. We've got an artist who worked on books for Eleanor de Bonne and members of the Lancastrian Circle. We've got this peculiar red rose motif that keeps turning up. None of these pieces of evidence is individually conclusive, but as a group, I think they are starting to point us here towards the royal family and particularly the House of Lancaster. While the exact patron remains a mystery, therefore, we can say that the book was an expensive and spectacular possession that somebody would have used for devotion and display. And I hope that I've demonstrated that even difficult and elusive manuscripts can repay very close study. So I will commend it to you all, and you can now go and spend as much time as you like playing with the digital images online. Thank you very much.